This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to WTS Waikatoa, a radio show and podcast taking a look at the quirkier people, groups and interests in the region. I'm producer Gary Farrow. The Pūkōrokōro Koro Koro Miranda Shorebird Centre is on the Firth of Thames and provides facilities, resources and tour guides for people to discover animals such as the bar-tailed godwits. They migrate here from Alaska every spring before heading back in the autumn. I spoke to Godwit expert Adrian Regan. The Korokoro Miranda Shorebird Centre, based on the Further Thames, uh, has been there, or the building's been there since 1990, but the organisation's been around since 1975. And we're particularly interested in the migratory wading birds, the red knots, the bar-tailed godwits, golden plovers, that sort of thing. Our aim is to sort of protect them as best we can, educate the public. So the um, Shorebird Centre there uh, is open to the public almost every day of the year. Uh, and there's information there about the birds, and we do a lot of other research and um, advocacy work uh, around the flyway. Particularly the bar-tailed godwits are found in every estuary and virtually every river mouth around the country from way up at Peringarenga in the far north, way down to um, Arua Bay in the Southland, in, near Invercargill. So, and on all, all coasts, from Farewell Spits, another great place for them, Manukau Harbour, uh, the Kuiper Harbour, they all it's hold thousands of, uh, of godwits. Quite a lot of the good shorebird places in the other harbours are actually quite difficult to get to. You have to go through private farmland uh, and that sort of thing, the Kuiper Harbour in particular. It's like that, and the Manukau Harbour. Around, there are areas around uh, Onihunga where you can see them sort of easily from the public point of view. But um, the Firth of Thames is a very good site. It's very, very close to the roads and so good access. So a real good spot for monitoring. In this case, the Eastern Bartel Godwit, which uh, the first of them which is tracked has actually arrived uh, in the Firth of Thames today. They arrived there probably somewhere around three or four o'clock this morning, yes. After flying a... Well over 12,000 kilometres, possibly as much as 12,300 kilometres in a single non-stop flight from Alaska. They're just waders. Uh, they're long-legged and long-billed, not particularly big, not, you know, a, a unassuming sort of bird. If you see them on the mudflat, they're mostly, while they're in New Zealand, uh, they're sort of grey and brown uh, colours, which blend in with mudflats, the habitat. So they're perfectly camouflaged on on mudflats. Uh, a lot of the time you can't see them that easily because they spend their time feeding on mudflats and it's really at high tide when all the mud is covered by the tide that they come into the shorelines, uh, beaches or shell banks uh, and that's where they're easier to observe. But you still generally can't get as close as you would to sort of like garden birds or ducks on a pond. These birds generally have a, a wary of of humans and and 
usually they'll they'll keep say 100 to 200 meters distance from humans um they, in some places they'll, you'll, they'll allow you to be closer to them where they see people regularly as they do at Pukorokora Miranda where there's um bird hides there and, and the birds are used to seeing people every day and so they often allow uh, you to get within sort of 50 meters of them um but not much closer than that any closer than that if you approach too close they'll just fly away uh, and they'll keep that distance but they're not the easiest birds to observe with the naked eye. It's good to have binoculars and particularly a telescope to see them in more detail. But, yeah, it's what they do that's extraordinary, these, these massive journeys they undertake every year. So how do they manage to make that journey from Alaska or there are other places they come from as well, eh, such as China? Well, the god, the, the Bartow god we get here... Uh, is a subspecies that breeds in Alaska. There's other subspecies uh, around the northern hemisphere, that, and there's one uh, in this flyway called the Mensbrii subspecies, and that breeds in Siberia and spends most of the non-breeding season, uh, you know, our summer, in um, northwest Australia, around Broome, Port Hedland, uh, Eight Mile Beach, that sort of thing. There's, but uh, in other places as well, that's the bulk of them are in that area. But this subspecies, subspecies we have they effectively do the a loop to get to alaska so if you if you start here in march they leave new zealand in march fly non-stop the yellow sea the reason the yellow sea or and southern japan is is good for them because it's a huge mud flats in those areas uh, although a lot of it's been destroyed in recent decades but there's still huge mud flats and that's where they need to find food so all around the coast of the yellow sea china north and south korea and from there, they then fly nonstop to Alaska, uh, or most of them. Occasionally, some stop in Siberia, but basically, they make the six to seven thousand k journey up to Alaska nonstop, uh, where they breed. <clears throat> After they breed, they they breed on uh, western and northern western Alaska and on North Slope, so fairly remote areas, and not many people in Alaska actually ever get to see them. So it's an American bird, if you like, but very few Americans sort of see them. Uh, because they once they finish breeding, they move south to the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta, where there's huge mudflats uh, and some shoals, offshore shoals. And this seems to be a very good place for them to, uh, to refuel. And they'll sit there for several months uh, until this time of year, to early September, um, when they depart on their non-stop flight to, to New Zealand and to Eastern Australia. So they're this particular subspecies, the Bowerai subspecies, is found all down the east coast of Australia uh, and in New Zealand. But the bulk of the population of that subspecies comes to New Zealand. Why do you think that is? Is it because of sort of a more stable climate for them to find at the end of their trip? Uh, well, they find it's somewhere that uh, historically has been pretty secure for them. Them, uh, New Zealand, very few predators uh, you know, before humans arrived. Uh, so it's a, it was a bit the benign sort of climate, uh, guaranteed food in these estuaries. And the, um, so it was a great spot to come. Uh, and once they find a good place, they'll tend to sort of return to it each year. Uh, so some of them return to Invercargill each year. If you like, they, they couldn't all stay on the Firth of Thames. There wouldn't be enough. Uh, food for them and so, so some would perhaps arrive on the first of Thames 
but you know they can't find food and and this is over generations and so they would move on uh further south or northeast west whatever but looking for somewhere else to find food some would go to tauranga and find good food uh not too many other birds there and and so on and they gradually have have moved around the country uh to the extent that what generally happens is the young birds that have bred just this year when they arrive in new zealand they've never been here before they're only a few months old and they won't leave the country for at least generally for a couple of years or more uh, to go back to breed and so in that time they tend to wander around new zealand you know they just go on their oe exploring the country finding different estuaries and generally then they'll settle on one estuary and that could be from perengarenga in the far north to, right down to invercargill and then that becomes their generally speaking their home for the rest of their lives so every year after that when they start to breed and they come back to New Zealand, they will go back to that site that they they particularly um, they settled on as a one or two or three year old bird. So, how long is the lifespan of a bar-tailed godbird? Well, it's the the oldest one we know of in, in a, of this population. It reached at least twenty eight and a half years old. But wow. that's probably, and we've had one that's reached twenty seven years old. And this is based on you know, several thousand that we've banded and that we can identify either by catching them again or because of the tags we put on their legs. But these days we uh, tend to put little lettered tags or colour bands on their legs, which means that you can then observe them without uh, having to catch them again. And you can monitor their movements between countries, uh, particularly with, if you've got a good telescope, you can read the little tiny letters on their, on these flags and identify them and so but a lot of them probably get to their early to mid teens but you know we're obviously very small numbers get into their 20s and and you know and into late 20s so potentially some of those birds have flown 700,000 kilometers on migration alone uh, we do know that they don't necessarily do the journey every year we have good examples now of birds that for various reasons, uh, the injury or sickness or getting out of sequence, uh, we'll, we'll have a gap year and we'll stay in New Zealand over winter instead of going north. Uh, although the urge to go north and breed is very strong, uh, probably the urge to survive is stronger. And so if, they, if they're not up to the, con- the right condition, then they'll just sit it out. Much better, if you're going to live for 20 years, you can afford to lose a breeding season but survive rather than risk heading north when you're not in peak condition and then falling into the sea somewhere in the 10,000 K flight to Asia. Uh, and that's the end of it. So there's to know whether it's, uh, whether they can make the journey or not. Well, obviously some will set off and not make it, but and some will just be too old in the end. We also know that some, get to a certain age and then they stop migrating so they will we see them through the winters here and they probably just never get they're probably too old to to make the journey anymore but they'll still live on for a while Mm. now to make that trip that requires some serious energy on the part of the birds um some serious wherewithal and i guess effectively sleeping while they are flying 
Yeah, we don't know enough about that as yet. It's very hard to study something that's flying across, uh, you know, 12,000 k of empty ocean. It's very, very hard to follow it. And we eat, uh, and because they're quite small birds, only weigh, you know, between three and 600 grams when they're empty or full of fuel. But we, there's not many tracking devices that we can fit on them yet. Uh, if you're a big, you know, a big polar bear or something, you can, they can carry um, tracking devices that will give all sorts of parameters and information. But these these little birds, we we're putting these little tags that are telling us what these birds are doing now. They they weigh either two or five grams, and they're solar powered. But they have a very limited amount of information they can tell you, uh, an accuracy detail because of the. Um, because of the size, you know, it's amazing how these much technology can be crammed into such a tiny thing. But uh, and each year these things get better, and we will end up with some that will tell us more and more things, will give us heart rates in the future, or things like that. Uh, and some of these things are becoming available, say, certainly for bigger birds, but um, it's getting it all reduced to a size that these birds can carry it. But they've got to get, um, yeah, I mean, before they depart, they've got to double their weight. They've got to carry all the fuel for the journey. They're not going to stop to eat and drink anywhere. The sleeping might be, you know, half, half a brain shutting down at time for a few minutes or catnapping for a few seconds at a time. We really don't know much about that as yet. Um, but they, they're taking all their fuel and, and liquid that they need for the whole, the whole journey in, in, and... Uh, so they double their weight before they leave here, uh, or on average they double their weight, and that will all get all that extra weight will be burnt off in in the you know seven to nine day journey, and they'll be back to where they were as a lean skinny bird, and then they've got to do it all to get to Asia. They've got to do it all again, double their weight in four to five weeks, fly to Alaska, and then before they leave there, they must double their weight at, at least for the journey south. You have been able to provide a fair bit of information uh, publicly on the Miranda Shorebird Centre Twitter page, um, which has been really fun to follow to, to chart the birds' uh, progress. And at points they have turned back and uh, then turned around again, sort of done a loop. And uh, I suppose that would be because of weather conditions or because of um, uh, wind flows. Yeah, it could be. We don't know. Again, that's something we're not quite sure about uh, <laughs> because they're doing this in very remote areas. It's very hard to actually go out and watch these things. You know, we, without the technology, we, we wouldn't know what they were up to. Uh, but yes, they certainly, um, the one that arrived here in the night this time, last year when it was, because we've tracked this one for two years now, and last year it... it um, got slowed down and ended up stopping in New Caledonia uh, for a few, for a week or two. Uh, then it, it obviously decided it was time to leave there and head to New Zealand and it set off. Um, but within a day it had turned around and then gone back to where it had left New Caledonia. So, and then it stopped for another week before finally uh, taking off and flying straight through to Pukarakora Miranda on, the, on its second attempt for that journey. So what, usually when we look at the weather maps, it, it, they're into headwinds, although um, how that, I mean, effectively, they generally in still air, they're flying at about, say, 50 to 60 kilometres an hour. So if they're into a headwind, they're still flying at 
the same uh, airspeed, but of course they're not making any headway. I mean, if you've got a, if you're flying at 50 kilometers an hour into the wind and the wind is going at 70 kilometers an hour, hour you're going backwards. So you're still <laughs> flying, effectively you're flying forwards, but over the land you're being pushed backwards. So we presume that they can, uh, they understand that and realize they're not making any headway um, and turn around and uh, go back to somewhere they've, or, or find somewhere that they can land. So we do have this, we've seen this in the past where birds have got towards New Caledonia. At this time of year, we get a lot of southwesterly fronts coming up off Tasmania and across the Tasman and, and hitting northern New Zealand. That's pretty common. Uh, and they, exactly when these birds are arriving. And so we have seen uh, conditions where several of those or those birds will end up um, heading west and landing in Queensland or New South Wales. And they'll wait, they'll have a, a short break there, maybe a week, and then they'll set off again and get back to New Zealand in better wind conditions. Mm, so in the end of Victoria, they can get on one of these fronts and they can get from the two and a half thousand K from Victoria, they can get across to New Zealand in 24 hours. It's a, you know, have a good strong head tailwind, still flying at the same airspeed, but the air is moving them along at the same, you know, the same pace. So they're getting maybe then doing 100 kilometers an hour land speed and still only doing 50 or 60 K airspeed. So it's, it's, we, we tend to look at, uh, headwinds from a terrestrial point of view if we're on a bicycle or something we're we're battling into a headwind because we're trying to go forward on on the ground whereas they move within the air mass so it's slightly it's the same with the plane a plane will you, you know a small plane can fly in the, at the, using the same revs the same speed air speed but it won't covering as much land in in, in a given hour but it won't be using any more effort. It's just not making much headway. Mm, so it's quite right. complex to these things, but they do seem to be able to know what to do and, and how to survive and know when to pull out or turn around, and go back. Uh, and there was another example of one that had done over 2000 K from Alaska this year. Certainly it was into strong headwinds and that one turned around and went all the way back. Uh, it's now back on its way. It's on its way South again now up in the you know northern heart or somewhere near hawaii i think at the moment it's the age-old question isn't it how migratory birds can find their way especially when they're over the pacific ocean with winds blowing this way and that and swirling around yeah. the place and and they just instinctively know where they're going um you've, you've described just now some of the birds end up in australia but then they come over to New Zealand anyway because New Zealand is their usual destination. Yeah, and they all seem to know. I, I, it doesn't seem to matter where they end up. They seem to know where they need to be. Uh, so they have a sort of a GPS reckoning system that tells them no matter. So they can be in Victoria, but they still know they could still point to Picoric or Miranda or to uh, Farewell Spit or something, their home. Uh, and then when they're ready, they'll go there. And they'll make that journey fairly straightforward. You know, in a, they won't wander around. They tend to leave Victoria and come straight back to the uh, their known place in New Zealand. So no matter where they are on the planet, they seem to know where they have to be or want to be. And eventually they'll get there. Uh, may take them some time. And, and, in those, and some of those have got back quite late. 
they've got delayed in Queensland or New South Wales and they've ended up not getting back here till perhaps December or January. Uh, and then they haven't got time to prepare for the journey north in March. And so those are some of those sort of birds will then spend the, the southern winter uh, in New Zealand. I have noticed in Auckland over the years that there are, um, as you spoke about before, Onihanga, the Blockhouse Bay, the Bartow Godwits that feed around those areas that migrate from one coast of Auckland to the other uh, to match the low tides and be able to 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 uh, forage for food that way. Um, what do the birds at uh, Miranda behave like? Yeah, they tend to stay put uh, in the Firth Thames. They'll move around within it. But uh, the Godwits in particular do tend to stay in that uh, in that heart or that you know the first they don't tend to move the ones on the manukau are as you say they're making most of the two there's a three-hour time uh high tide time difference between the white matter and the manukau and so when the tide's rising on the on the manukau and the birds are losing their feeding grounds the tide is starting to drop on the white matter and so they can fly across blockhouse but it's a famous route many people have observed them flying backwards and forwards across. The food, the pheasants are good in the Waitamat Harbour, off Tiatu in particular, but they, they can, particularly in, between January and March when they're preparing for their journey north and they're growing all the feathers and everything, so they need quite a lot of energy, uh, they will often make that journey just for a couple of hours. They'll go across to the Waitamata as the tide's rising on the Manukau and then as it drops on the Manukau, they'll go back uh, to the dropping tide on the Manukau and they can start feeding again there um, or go to sleep if they want to. But, but it gives them that opportunity to get a bit more extra, bit of extra food. So they don't tend to do it in the early part of the season, mostly just towards uh, the migration time in March. That's when that happens on a daily basis. I used to get the impression of the same birds travelling together in flocks, but it sounds more like from this conversation we've had that the, the godwits are much more uh, independent animals. They just go where the wind takes them and where their instinct takes them. So do we know if the, the flocks that are um, uh, migrating over Auckland and indeed uh, coming down from Alaska are, are different every time? Because they fly in a V formation, don't they, to... Um, uh, help with the, um, the 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 wind to carry them all along. Yeah, they use the V formation is aerodynamically uh, a, a very efficient, and we can see that uh, in cycle races where you'll get a string of cyclists all just sort of just half a half a wheel length behind each other, and they're all sort of streaming off the one in the front, and then the one in the front will drop to the back and let the next one take over. And that's a very efficient way of moving forward at a better speed. And so the Godwits are doing something similar. What we do know, what uh, some great studies have been done over the last 13 or 14 years at Foxton Estuary in Manawatu, where there's a, a small population of Godwits, between two and 300. And we've tagged a lot of those. And, we, uh, and one person in particular, Jesse Conklin, did his PhD on this. And he's observed the birds migrating there each year. And because it's a small estuary, um, you can observe individual birds departing very precisely down to the minute. Uh, something like 
on further Thames on Maroga Harbour, it's much harder to watch individual birds migrate uh, because they often, when you see them migrate, but it's often maybe several hundred metres away when they, they, they take off and you can't necessarily see the tags on them at that distance. So you don't know which bird is moving. But at Foxton, it's very small estuary and they gather around and the, and the observer can watch them and see the colour bands and watch them depart. So they, we've had some fantastic information on departures. And it, generally speaking, uh, each individual godwit has its own schedule. Uh, so a bird that leaves on, say, the 10th of March each year will leave on the pretty well close to that most years. I mean, there is exceptions, of course, nothing's perfect. But you do get a, a sense that that individual bird knows the day it needs to leave. It leaves on the... There's another one that spends most of its summer at um, Wanganui Estuary, and that one departs on about the 25th of March each year and has done close to that date for the last 13 years, something like that. That's been observed departing, you know, within a minute of its departure time. It's being local observers are seeing it depart and predicting the day it will depart and, and being spot on pretty well every time. The, the reason they may not go on that specific days that the winds might be uh, advent, uh, not advantageous so if they've strong headwind northern northerly wind or something then they're not going to go they'll wait until uh, two days later or something when the winds are more from the south or southeast and they get a better run now um if you want to just uh quickly uh tell us a bit more about the shorebird center and how people might be able to get involved, what sort of roles they might be able to play, what sort of uh, uh, guides they might be able to have, or yeah, how they can get into um, the uh, observation of birds themselves. Oh, yeah, well, that's no problem. You, I mean, the, the, as I said, the place is open every day except Christmas Day or, or uh, COVID lockdown times, but uh, and we do have a range of volunteers. Now, some of those are just uh, happy looking after the visitor centre and working in the shop there, uh, doing that sort of thing. Others act as uh, bird guides out on the uh, at the hides during the high time, uh, the high tide. So anyone visiting uh, gets a chance to learn more about the birds from the bird guides. Because uh, if you go there on your own and you don't have binoculars or a telescope, then you're going to see some birds out in the distance and not really be able to make much sense of it so we try to as much as we can during the summer period in particular and over the high tide period have have volunteers then we always need more of them to to uh, help uh, other people just help looking after the grounds around the center that sort of thing so there's a range of things people can do that they, all, all they need to do is go and visit and um, uh, say they want to get involved and uh, we'll find something for them to do the more comment. they know about birds that the better from being able to guide them, but they don't have to know anything about birds. People can, and, and we're always keen to teach people. So there's, there's plenty of opportunities for people who want to get involved and help spread the story of these birds, which is what, um, what we want to do. And by spreading the story, we hope the more people that take care for these things, then the more chance we have of protecting the mud flats here and in East Asia uh, for these birds. 
Thanks to Adrian Regan, the Pūkorokoro Miranda Shorebird Centre and the bar-tailed Godwits for being the subjects of this episode of WTS Waikato. If you liked what you heard, you can like the show on Facebook or find it wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, stay safe and be kind. Thanks to Free FM, the Community Access Media Alliance and New Zealand On Air for making this show happen. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This Free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.